Well, herein ends our study of the book of Mark. If you have been here for any length of time, you will know that we began this series in June of last year, and today we're going to complete this series by turning to Mark chapter 16. To begin with, I invite you to follow me as I read publicly from God's Word, beginning in the first verse. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now I'm ending there. And that in and of itself is problematic. And I need to take 15 minutes, I hope that's all it is, uh, this morning, this day, to explain Why I end there. If you're using the good old King James Version, last time I checked, the text just continues. It just continues right on, no pause, verse 9, all the way through to verse 20. If, however, you are using the ESV, which is the text I'm reading from, or the New American Standard Version, or NIV, the New International Version, You will notice that there are verses there, 9 to 20, but there's a break, or these verses are in parentheses, or they are in italics. There's a footnote saying something to the effect that in the earliest manuscripts, these verses are not found. We have to ask this question. We have to address this issue head on. Why? Because our faith rests on this book. Our faith rests on God's holy word, and so we need to be clear uh, in terms of our understanding. We need to be crystal clear when it comes to our understanding of what we mean when we declare, I declare it as an individual, we declare it corporately as a church, that all Scripture is God-breathed. When we affirm that, we mean the following. That the Holy Spirit used the human authors in such a way that what they wrote was His, not theirs. The Scripture, all of it, in its entirety, is God-breathed. But here's the fact. Here's the reality. We do not have the original texts, which were God-breathed. What we have are copies. And what I want to affirm is that with absolute certainty, as we pick up our English Bible, 
we can read it confidently. We can read it with assurance, knowing that based on the textual evidence, what we have is the very Word of God. Now, I'm going to illustrate this for us, and and I'm doing so to set the stage for these verses, verses 9 through 20, and how we are to handle them. And Tricia is going to be my right arm this morning. Tricia, that's Tricia in the back. She's going to help me because we're going to use the PowerPoint. And we're going to pull up eight slides. I'm going to walk you through this. I know this will be strenuous. It will. Strenuous for me. It might be a little tedious. But again, it is absolutely necessary, essential, because our faith is fixed on this book. And so the first slide you'll see, please, Tricia. What has this got to do with anything? It will become clear in just a moment. Thucydides wrote a book called The History of the Peloponnesian War. You pick it up sometime when you've got nothing better to do and you are in for a treat. Written in 430 BC. That's a long time ago. We have eight ancient copies of that book. When I use the phrase ancient copy, we're referring to a copy which was penned prior to the 15th century. That is the 1400s. What happened in the 1400s? The advent of the printing press. So an ancient manuscript, an ancient document predates the advent, that is the invention of the printing press. We have eight ancient ancient copies of that book. The oldest was written in the 10th century. So that's 1,300 years after the original. No historian today questions or doubts the historical veracity of this book. Are you with me? Next slide, Tricia. Tacitus penned the histories when in the year 110 A.D., so after Christ. How many ancient copies do we have of this book? Only two that predate the advent of the printing press. What is the oldest? The 9th century, so 700, 800 years after the original. No one today questions the historical reliability nor veracity of this book. Are you following me? The Gospel of Mark. Next slide, Tricia. When was it written? At the latest, the year 65. Somewhere between the year 60 and 65. How many ancient copies do we have of this book? 5,000 in the Greek. 20,000 in Latin and other languages. When was the oldest written? In the year 135. Within 70 years of the original. Friends, it is intellectual dishonesty to question the historical reliability and veracity of this book. Intellectual dishonesty. 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts, 20,000 ancient Latin and other languages, the manuscripts, and when we compile all of this textual evidence, we can with certainty... Take hold of our English Bible, whatever translation you're using, and we can rest our faith on the Scriptures knowing that what we possess is the Word of God. Now, I trust that's clear thus far. When we go through, we, 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 we sift our way through all of those ancient manuscripts, we do discover that the copyists were not perfect men. The copyists were fallible, and the copyists made mistakes. 
And at times, they made mistakes which are grammatical in nature. And so next slide, Tricia. Changing the order of the letters. Laura got it. The rest of you are staring at Stephen. Boy, he's got to go back to school. I don't have a clue how to spell. Changing the order of the letters. We see that in some of the texts. Next slide, Tricia. Combining the last letter of one word with the first letter of the next word. That happens in some of these manuscripts as well. Next slide, Tricia. Separating one word into two. I'll pause and let you think that one through. It's a little trickier. Next slide, Tricia. Tough crowd. Misreading similar letters. And I've just given you six Greek letters there to show you the similarity between some of these. And at times, the copyists get it wrong. They make mistakes. Next slide, Tricia. Misspelling words that sound alike. And I gave you one of my pet peeves here as I mark papers, even at the seminary level, the difference between there, there, and there. They mean three completely different things, are spelled in three completely different ways, but at times people get them confused. And I think there's one more slide, Tricia. Omitting a word. We go out with a bang. Omitting a word. And so we take all of those ancient manuscripts. Uh, The copyists were fallible men. And as we read through them, as we sift through them, and we're done with all the slides now, no more, uh, we discover that there are grammatical mistakes. But as we compile them and compare them, we can correct them. At times, as we go through all of these ancient manuscripts, we discover that occasionally phrases are included or omitted. Two examples from the book of Mark. One we already considered. Turn with me all the way back to Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, the Lord Jesus is speaking, he is preaching, and he is speaking of mortification. And look at Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Very last statement. Uh, Go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. In the ESV, there is no verse 44. Go straight to verse 45. How does verse 45 end? Be thrown into hell. There is no verse 46. It goes right into verse 47. How does verse 47 end? Be thrown into hell. And then what do we have in verse 48? Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In some manuscripts, and this comes out in the King James Version, that statement in verse 48 is inserted and it becomes verse 44. And it is inserted again and it becomes verse 46. Why? Because there are three references to hell. End of verse 43, the unquenchable fire. End of verse 45, thrown into hell. End of verse 7, thrown into hell. And now there is this descriptive in verse 48 where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And it seems some scribe, for emphasis sake, thought it would be a good idea to repeat that phrase after the first two references to hell, just for, to stress it for the sake of emphasis. And so in, re, in actual fact, the phrase likely isn't there. But that's no problem, is it? The phrase is biblical. The phrase is right there in verse 48. The phrase does apply to the preceding three references to hell, so it does not pose any problem to our faith. The second example, the only other example I know of in the book of Mark, you turn over to chapter 15. And as we considered this text last Sunday, I told you I would return to this verse, I promise. So here we are, chapter 15, verse 27. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. In the ESV, verse 28 is gone. And those who passed by derided him. In the King James Version, it is there. What does it say? Simply the following. And the scripture was fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. Why? Some manuscripts have that phrase. Some manuscripts don't have that phrase. It does not pose our challenge to our faith. Why? Because it is actually scripture. It is a quotation from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 12. As a matter of fact, Luke, in the 22nd chapter of his book, he quotes precisely that text in reference to the Lord Jesus, who was numbered among the transgressors. And so it's quite possible that some scribe, some copyist, familiar with Luke's account, and certainly familiar with the book of Isaiah, and certainly familiar with what was transpiring at the cross, inserted this as a note, as a marginal note, this quotation, this citation from Isaiah 53. That does not challenge our faith. It does not undermine the faith because it is indeed Scripture. And it does indeed have a direct bearing on what is happening and transpiring at this precise moment upon Calvary's cross. Are you with me? And so we go back into the manuscripts. And there are some mistakes grammatically. There are some differences in terms of phraseology. And there are two instances in the New Testament when entire sections are included or omitted. The first section is in John chapter 8, the narrative, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Some of the ancient manuscripts have that incident recorded. In some of them, it is missing. I don't have time to deal with that one this morning. The second example, the second instance is here in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Missing from some of the ancient manuscripts, present in other manuscripts. It is, it is a challenging puzzle to unravel. Let me try to explain it it to you briefly. When we go back to the ancient manuscripts, there are are two pillars which, uh, which stand out upon which our translations are largely based. They date from the year 325, so very early 4th century. They're actually books. One is called the Codex Sinaiticus, and the other is called the Codex Vaticanus. In the first couple of centuries, A.D., they didn't produce books. It was scrolls. We all know what a scroll is, parchments. But then they began to develop this technology of, of, of actually uh, of, of making, manufacturing books, uh, sheets of animal skin bound together with letter, uh, leather, and they were known as a codex, a book. And so we have, dating from 325, two of these books, which actually contain the Old Testament in Greek and the entire New Testament in Greek. 325, the Codex Sinaiticus, that is the book of Sinai. The Codex Vaticanus, that is the book of the Vatican, because it has been housed in the Vatican Library ever since the 15th century. You go back and you look at these two books, and Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, aren't there. They aren't there. It's not that a page is missing. It's not that a page has been torn out or burnt or destroyed or or lost in some way or some fashion. Is that the book just ends in verse 8 and Luke begins. 
And so some have concluded, based on that textual evidence, that in actual fact, verses 9 through 20 don't belong. But the problem is this. This is where it gets really complex. As you look at other manuscripts, in actual fact, the majority of other ancient manuscripts, the verses are there. And on top of that, Irenaeus, who is a pivotal, extremely important early church father, he lived from the year 130 to about the year 200, so second century, he actually quotes from these verses. So you see the dilemma? So you'll have some scholars over here, verses 9 through 20, I don't, I don't think they belong. And some scholars over here saying, well, I, I think, I think they, they do belong. It, it pains me to say this, but all I can do is give you an opinion. I think it's the first time I've ever said that from the pulpit, hopefully the last. All I can do is give you an opinion. That from, from, from as, you, as you sift through all the evidence, it seems, it appears, that the book does indeed end with the eighth verse. But a copyist, very early on in the history of the church, perhaps even still during Mark's lifetime, added an appendix, what has become known as verses 9 through 20. Why? Because he wanted to give an historical account of what happened after the resurrection and give a summary in particular of what happened through the book of Acts. And so this becomes an appendix. That copy becomes the, the, the copy, the foundation of, of, of a tradition of copyists. And over a small period of time, verses 9 and 20 become more than an appendix, but are actually included as part of the book of Mark. That is my opinion that they do not belong, but I cannot state that emphatically. I cannot state that dogmatically, but I can state this. There's nothing wrong with verses 9 through 20. There is no error in verses 9 through 20. There is nothing unbiblical in verses 9 through 20. There is nothing that contradicts anything in all of Scripture in verses 9 through 20. And to that end, I, I, insert, I put a little insert in the church bulletin because I really wanted to emphasize this and stress this. You can thank Taylor for giving you a copy of this on both sides. I don't know what Taylor was thinking. He thought you needed it on both sides, but thanks to Taylor for being so diligent in terms of making these copies. Sorry, Taylor, I couldn't refuse taking a dig. Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, and down the left column, I've just listed all of the verses There are 11 key events recorded. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Mary told the disciples. The disciples refused to believe Mary. Jesus appeared to two disciples. Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples. Jesus rebuked the disciples for their unbelief. Jesus commissioned the disciples to preach the gospel. The commission included a command to baptize. Jesus mentioned four signs which would accompany the disciples. They cast out demons. They spoke with new tongues. They were protected from venom and poison. They healed the sick. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus confirmed the apostolic witness through signs. That is what these verses relate. That is what they give us an account of. And what I have clearly demonstrated in this brief outline is that all of this can be confirmed in the books of Matthew, Luke, John, and in particular, the book of Acts. So there is nothing here that should shake the foundation of our faith. There is nothing here that contradicts anything in the book of Mark or contradicts 
anything in the Word of God. We have an accurate historical appendix, it, is, it seems, that a copyist decided to add very early on to give us a summary, a summary statement, summation of what happened after Mark's gospel count concluded with the empty tomb. Now, at the very bottom of that insert, and I want to come full circle to what we affirm, what we believe as a church, that all Scripture is God-breathed, the Holy Spirit use the human authors in such a way that what they wrote was his, not theirs. We can have absolute confidence that what we possess in our hands is the Word of God based on the texts, the ancient manuscripts that are available to us. And why is this so important? Why should you care? It's summed up. The answer is summed up in that paragraph at the bottom of the insert. Scripture reveals a glorious God. It reveals a great Savior and a great salvation. It is the means by which God breaks a hard heart, humbles a proud heart, awakens a sleepy heart, enlightens a darkened heart, and regenerates a dead heart. It is the means by which Christ comes to us. It is the means by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Scripture sustains in times of dark affliction. It comforts in times of deep sorrow. It strengthens in times of danger. It guides in times of confusion. It promises the greatest blessings. It entitles us to the best inheritance. It has God for its author, Christ for its subject, and eternal life for its end. It is a special treasure which God has deposited into the hands of the children of men. That is what we believe. That is what we affirm, and that is why we are a word-focused church. With all that said, I don't know if that was 15 minutes, but I hope I kept it more or less to 15 minutes. With all that said, and I hope that wasn't too tedious, I hope you perceive the importance of this and the magnitude of this subject and the repercussions. We return to Matthew 16, the first eight verses. In our study, we have traveled from a virgin's womb, now to an empty tomb. And in these eight verses, Mark chooses to force us to hone in on, to focus in on five details. First is this, detail number one, the silent Sabbath. Verse one, when the Sabbath was... Past. This is Passion Week. Passion Week began on a Sunday. Christ Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, to the temple. It ends on a Sunday with his resurrection. Lots of activity recorded on six days. But on this day, the Sabbath, there is nothing but silence. From a human vantage point, nothing is happening. From a divine vantage point, much has just been accomplished. And on this silent Sabbath, Jesus basks in the radiance and in the glory and in the delight of his heavenly Father, having accomplished the work which he entrusted to him. It is symbolic, it is extremely symbolic and extremely significant that it is a Sabbath. You go all the way back, it drives us back to creation week in the book of Genesis. 
Creation ends with the Sabbath, God's rest. And now this second creation ends with a silent Sabbath. And the Sunday, the next day, will inaugurate a new creation, a new kingdom. So Matthew Henry insightfully declares, Friend, the Sabbath is over. And the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, is the first day of a new world. That's detail number one. Detail number two is this. The unreliable women. Steady on, sister. Steady. If you charge the pulpit, Logan will stand in the gap. I have every confidence. Mike will stand in the gap. I have every confidence. The unreliable women. What do I mean by that? It, it, as, you, as we read from verse 42 of the preceding chapter through to verse 1 of chapter 16, Mark intentionally, there's no mistake here, he's being very intentional. He mentions these women three times. Why? Because he is emphasizing, you go back to verse 40, verse 42, he is emphasizing the fact that they were present Where? At the crucifixion. Actually, it's verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joses and Salome. So he's intentional. The women are there. The disciples aren't there. The women witness Jesus' crucifixion. They witness his death. Now look at verse 47 in chapter 15. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Josie saw where he was laid. Not the disciples. It's the women who are the witnesses as to the burial of Jesus Christ. Now we come into the 16th chapter, the third instance, very first verse, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. It's not the disciples. The women witness the resurrection. Isn't that fascinating? Women. Women witness his crucifixion, his death. He is dead. Women witness his burial, his body entombed. And women witness his resurrection. Here's my point. It's simply this. If Mark were making this up, he would not have based it upon the testimony, my apology, sisters, of women. Why? In that day and age, their testimony, their witness was inadmissible in court. Why? They were considered to be unreliable. If Mark were making this up, if Mark were inventing this story, he would have included robust men, faithful, true witnesses as to the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Mark has to record things as they happen. Mark has to give us a true account. And so he records what really happens, no matter how much it must have pained him personally, he records what really happens. Look, these events, they rest on the testimony of women. He would not have made that up. And so we have these women present at each of these three pivotal instances. It brings us to the third detail, the wonderful surprise. Verses 3 through 6. 
Turn with me in your Bibles back to the ninth chapter just for a moment. The wonderful surprise. Mark chapter 9. And look at what we read in the ninth verse. This is following the transfiguration. Jesus has been transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They are clueless, in a word. In the 8th chapter, Jesus declares it. In the ninth chapter, it's recorded. In the 10th chapter, it's recorded. In the 14th chapter, it's recorded. We don't know how many times he taught them. We don't know how many times he declared it. We don't know how many times he proclaimed it. We can only guess that I must go up to Jerusalem where I must suffer many things. I must be killed. I must be crucified. On the third day, I will rise again. They don't understand it. They are clueless. This is essential that we get this and understand this. The disciples are not expecting the resurrection. That's why they're not at the tomb. They are not expecting the Lord Jesus to rise from the dead. They have not understood what he has promised. They have not understood what he has taught them time and time and time again. These women aren't at the tomb because they are expecting a resurrection. They are there because they want to anoint his body properly for burial. Joseph of Arimathea did a rush job on the Friday when Christ was crucified. Now they want to do it properly. They want to make sure his body is anointed with these spices for burial. It is crucial, essential, pivotal that we get this. No one expects the resurrection. They are in for a surprise. They are actually three surprises. And they ascend in terms of their wow factor. The first surprise is a removed stone. Verse 4. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. I don't think they immediately deduced that that was miraculous. It was just a surprise. It was unexpected. Obviously, they were planning on removing the stone themselves, weren't they? Getting in there, having access to the body. Someone has removed the stone. Imagine their shock. This is unexpected. Their surprise. Next surprise. It builds. Not just a removed stone, but a seated man. Verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. The other Gospels make it clear. This is an angel dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. They perceive that he is no ordinary man. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. So we have a removed stone. And then we have a seated man. And now we come to the surprise of surprises, a resurrected body, verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. They were witnesses to it, and they were witnesses to his burial. He is dead. And look at what the angel now says to them right at the end of verse 6. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. A wonderful surprise. Fourth detail is this, an encouraging command. Verse seven, verse 7, the angel, the young man, continues to speak to these women. He commands them. It's an encouraging command, but go. And notice the emphases here. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. 
There you will see him, just as he told you. On the night he was betrayed, it's recorded in chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus told them this is what was going to happen. He's going to die. He is going to rise again. And he will go before them into Galilee. Now the angel makes it clear that this has come to pass. But notice three things. Notice firstly that he addresses his comments to these women. And he tells them to tell whom? The disciples. He does not send the women to the crowds. He does not send the women to the council, the Jewish religious authorities. He does not send the women to Caiaphas. He does not send the women to Herod. He does not send these women to Pilate. They are left in darkness. He sends them to the disciples. Why? Because these disciples constitute the beginning, the seed of the kingdom, the new Israel. But notice something secondly here, very important in this verse. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Mark wrote, Peter dictated. And undoubtedly, Mark's trying to keep up with with Peter as he's just bubbling over here, his enthusiasm, as, as he recalls this incident. And as he recalls, yes, it was the angel who told the women to come and tell us. But, he, but he, not only did he tell them to, to tell us, he told them to tell his disciples and Peter. Why is that so significant? For the following reason. At this moment, do you think Peter still considered himself to be a disciple? Not likely, friend. As far as Peter's concerned, it's over. He has blown it big time. He has blown it in an unimaginable fashion in denying his Savior, Jesus Christ, three times. And hearing that rooster crow and catching Jesus' eye on that night he was betrayed in his trial and his crucifixion. To hear these words now, these women who will find the disciples ultimately, tell them an angel has appeared, the body isn't there, and they've told us to come to you disciples to let you know to go to Galilee. And they specifically made mention of Peter. Peter, some of us here need to hear that. Some of you here right now need to insert your name in this verse. Go tell the disciples and whoever you are this morning. You think you have blown it. There is no going back. Can't turn back the clock. You have done the unimaginable. It's just all falling apart at the seams. Can't pretend anymore. And why would the Lord Jesus Christ want anything to do with me? Oh, friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is able to wash away every sin and every stain. You go and you tell the disciples and Peter that he has risen. And you're to go to Galilee and he will go there before you and meet you. And that's the third wonderful detail, isn't it? Why does he tell them to go to Galilee? Why there? Who cares? Why Galilee? Well, my mind has mulled this one over. Is it designed to remove the disciples from the danger posed by the council? It's possible. Is it designed to give the disciples an opportunity to absorb all that has happened? It's quite overwhelming. That's possible. Is it designed to impart a special season of teaching? Very likely. Is it possible it's designed to test their faith and affection? That too is possible. Is it designed to recommission them? Because Galilee is where it all began. Galilee was where it all started. Galilee is where Jesus called them. Galilee is where Jesus commissioned them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel 
And Galilee is where Jesus will recommission them to go where? To all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A fifth detail, verse 8, the startling end. This is it. Rather melodramatic, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We know subsequently that they did tell the disciples. We know what happens subsequently. But Mark seems to bring the book to an end here in the 8th verse, and it begs the question, why would he end this way? I mean, what a letdown. To to, to leave us with this scene of an angel in an empty tomb, the body gone, these women overwhelmed and and running away and and, and overcome with with, with fear and awe and, and amazement. What a way to end. Friend, remember when and where Mark writes this book. He writes this book from Rome. He writes it somewhere between 60 and 65 A.D. What is happening? The church is beginning to catch the attention of the Roman emperor. The church Christians, they are beginning to catch the attention and the suspicion of Rome. And the church is about to enter through the fire. We read of this in quite graphic terms in parts of the book of Revelation. They are about to enter in through a great persecution. And I think it's no mistake that Mark ends his gospel account in this fashion. Why? He wants to remind them of how the church began. He wants to remind them of where the church came from. He wants to remind them of this great truth. And friends, in our day, come what may, we must never lose sight of this truth. God birthed the church by his almighty power, from an empty tomb. And it doesn't come hell or high water. It does not matter what happens or what transpires in this society, this country, or the world over. We have this absolute certainty that from the most meager beginnings, these women who go off scattered, perplexed, there is nothing but an empty tomb. That from this empty tomb, God births the church by his almighty power. What are the implications of this empty tomb? In a nutshell, in a word, it is the object of our faith. It is the root of our faith. Let me illustrate this quickly in four ways. Firstly, the first implication of the empty tomb is this. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. Return with me in your mind's eye to 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 what preceded the cross. And recall, as we went through it, in vivid, Mark records it in vivid t- detail in the previous chapter, as we recall the mocking that Jesus experienced as he hung upon Calvary's cross. And as we remember the focus, the intent of that mocking was to cast doubt on the Father's relationship with the Son. It was to bring into question the relationship of the Father with his Son, the Father's delight in the Son, the Father's pleasure with the Son, that as Jesus hangs on the cross and as he reflects on his ministry and as he reflects on what he heard at his baptism and as he reflects on what he heard at his transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased as he is forsaken by the Father on the cross. It sure doesn't look like it. And that is the intent of the mocking. 
Because you see, friend, the goal of Satan is not the death of the Lord Jesus. The goal of Satan is that Jesus leaps from the cross. The goal of Satan is that Jesus, just like Adam in the garden, would go against the will of his father. His goal is that he would doubt the goodness of his father. His goal is that Jesus, like Adam, our forefather in the garden, would decide to go it alone. And that is the intent of the mocking. And as that mocking is directed at him, And as the Lord Jesus then declares, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is nothing but deafening silence. The Father refuses to answer. This is his answer. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. We believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And his resurrection testifies to it. Second implication. We believe Jesus is the Savior of sinners. I mentioned it last Sunday. I'll repeat it. That as he hangs in that agony, that state and condition of forsakenness, those three hours of darkness on Calvary's cross, and he utters that cry, heart-piercing cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it is not a cry of doubt. It is not a cry of despair. It is not a cry of surprise. It is the cry of the damned that he is forsaken by his father so that we don't have to be forsaken. Jesus utters that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we don't have to utter those words. Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. Jesus becomes our substitute, bears the penalty of our sin in our place. And so we have this wonderful assurance. Paul tells us in Romans 4, 5, that Jesus was delivered up. There's that phrase again, delivered up. We appealed to it a couple of weeks ago. It's found throughout Scripture. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How can I be absolutely certain the Father is pleased with Jesus' sacrifice? How how can I be positive that the Father has accepted that, that redeeming work? How can, I, how, can I, how can I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Father will not change, that the Father is entirely pleased, satisfied with that great atoning work upon Calvary's cross? The resurrection testifies to it. He was raised for our justification. Third implication is this. We believe Jesus is the first fruits of a coming resurrection. Paul takes us down this road through all of his epistles. One of my favorite instances in 2 Corinthians 4.16 where he reminds us that humanity consists of an outer man and an inner man. By the outer man, he means the body, which is physical. By the inner man, he means the soul, which is spiritual. That's what it means to be human, body and soul. That's how God made us. Both corrupt as a result of the fall. Both redeemed by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even now, our inner man, our souls, we're being renewed little by little in the likeness of Christ. But our bodies, still subject to the penalty of sin, death. But that is not the end. Absolute certainty because Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruit, as a pledge of a coming resurrection, that our bodies, he will raise them from the dead. They will be reunited with our souls and our humanity will be glorified as the humanity of Jesus in the presence of God forevermore. 
We believe Jesus is the first fruits of a coming resurrection. What hope that brings. Hear these words. When you are sorrowing for the death of your child, or husband, or father, or mother, or brother, or sister, who has died in Jesus, you should listen to the news that faith brings. It sees them filled with joy, mounting up to heaven, and they're enjoying rivers of pleasures and a weight of glory. Surely, if after such news you should continue weeping, it should be for great joy. The grave is not the end. I don't know how unbelievers live. I don't. If, uh, if I do not believe in the Lord Jesus, if my faith were not fixed in him, if my hope were not fixed in him, I don't know how I would get through this day. How do you deal with the reality of death? How do you deal with the chaos of destruction? How do you cope with tragedy? How do you, how do you cope with a world system, a worldview, which basically tells you we live between two poles of meaninglessness. How? And we find meaning, we find significance, we find truth, we find hope, we find beauty in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in this absolute unwavering uncertainty that death is not the end. The fourth implication is this of the empty tomb. Please get this one if you've got nothing else. We believe the best is yet to come. We believe the best is yet to come. To come. Hear Paul's words in Romans 8.22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together. Notice the, the, the imagery he uses here. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Why does he choose to make that comparison? That creation groans with the pains of childbirth because childbirth is painful. But the groaning of childbirth is anticipatory. The groaning and the pain of childbirth gives way to unspeakable joy with the birth of a new child. That is what Paul is conveying here, that similarly, right now, the entire universe, the entire created order groans. And it does so with the pains, the agony of childbirth. But that groaning is anticipatory because it will usher in a new creation. It will usher in a renewed creation when we are raised from the dead. Creation now awaits the glorification, the redemption of the sons of God. And when we are redeemed finally and perfectly and eternally, it will usher in a new heavens and a new earth in which there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no injustice, there is no anxiety, there is no heartache, there is no strife. There is no conflict, there is no sin, and there is no death. Why is it so hard to face suffering now? Because far too often we think this broken world is all there is. I'm going to repeat that one. Why do we find it so difficult to face suffering, so hard to face suffering now? Because at times we think this broken world is all there is. No, friend, we believe the best is yet to come. The resurrection of Jesus, listen to my words carefully, the resurrection of Jesus isn't, isn't inspiring. No, it's not. It is transforming. It swallows every sorrow. 
It eases every pain. It extinguishes every uncertainty. And it calms every fear because it fixes, grounds our hope that our pain shall then be over. We'll sin and sigh no more. Behind us all of sorrow and naught but joy before. A joy in our Redeemer as we to him are nigh in the crowning day that's coming by and by. And that ends our study of the book of Mark. Now, when we began, way back in June, I shared with you that I had two goals, two objectives. You likely don't remember. I forgive you for that. But I have kept them before me these 10 months And I want to repeat them now by way of prayer requests. Goal number one, objective number one, this. That we would be equipped to discern, declare, and defend the biblical gospel and the biblical Jesus. Why? Because many churches fail to proclaim a biblical gospel. Rather than proclaiming the utter depravity of man, the absolute sovereignty of God, the beauty of the imputation of Jesus' righteousness, and the necessity of repentance from sin. Many churches speak about a God whose greatest objective is to make us happy. Equally true. Many churches fail to present a biblical Jesus. Rather than presenting a mighty Savior who rescues sinners from God's righteous judgment by way of his substitutionary sacrifice. They speak of a Jesus who wants to be our best friend. I pray this study of Mark has clarified and crystallized our understanding of the biblical gospel and the biblical Jesus. Second objective was this, that we would be stirred to encounter, embrace, and enjoy Jesus. Hear these words, please, friend. We are made for something far greater than anything this world has to offer. And inherently, we know it's true. The right soulmate will not make you happy. The right family will not make you happy. The right house will not make you happy. The right career will not make you happy. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I pray that this study has cultivated in us a desire to seek and to savor Jesus. Our Father, we make that our prayer as we conclude this day. We ask of you that you would give us eyes to see with clarity, ears to hear with clarity, and hearts to receive with humility, that as we unpack and unfold and ponder and declare your word that you by your spirit might implant it deep within each and every heart. We pray that you would bring us into greater conformity to your word. We pray that you would renew us in the likeness of your son. And for unbelievers in our midst this day, our prayer is simple, our father. We do plead and beg you on their behalf that you would be merciful and that by the power of your spirit, you would bring them to the conviction of their sin, bring them to the foot of the cross, And bring them to acknowledge and embrace a great and mighty Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do ask it. Amen.